Welcome back to Almost Familiar to our new friends and our old friends. Seems like we might have some new friends on this episode today because I was looking at our numbers from our last episode, some new followers on Instagram, and it seems like we have some new people that might be joining us today. So we thought that in addition to telling you who we are, I'm Elizabeth. As always, I'm here with my good friend Wes. We should maybe give you a little summary about what we're all about. Are you dumping the summary on my shoulders? I totally am. I know that's kind of that's an asshole move up. and I didn't that's give you a heads up, up but you know. <laughs> well, what up? I'm Wes and you know, what we do is Elizabeth and I are probably just a lot like you guys. You know, we are just two people that happen to be living in the same kind of space that ran into each other. And, you know, throughout the years, we've been to a lot of functions and a lot of events centering around music. And we just fell in love with this music scene and this culture that's such a big and pervasive part of our lives. And it's, you know, it's been the whole basis of our friendship for the last almost decade here. So what this podcast is, is it's kind of an homage to this neo-hippie scene or whatever you want to call it that we love. And then I think the other part too, is just talking about electronic music a little bit more than anything else I feel like we do on this show, because there's just such a life force behind it that I think is really palpable. And it's just something really that blows my mind fucking constantly. And I just love the shit. And we try to take a look at our scene through the lenses of other members of the community without, you know, cause we're just fans, you know, that's all we are. I did a little bit of journalism for live for live music back in the day. And I've worked in the industry for the last eight years up until recently. So, you know, we just really love this culture and we're really excited to be kind of documenting it through this podcast. So Again, to the new friends and the old, we're super excited to have you here with us. We're really, really, really fortunate to be doing this. So take that, Elizabeth, for dumping that on me. Yeah, that was that was beautiful. That was sensational, Wes. I'm I'm super <laughs> impressed. I have I have nothing else to add. That was that was perfect. That's that's what we're all about. It's all about the stories, all about like the human, the humans that bring this scene to life, whether they're the, the, the musician, the tour manager, the lighting designer, there's just so many, even just the fans, like there's so many people that play a role in this community. And it's just been so fascinating to examine the impact and kind of realize not to be cheesy, but that everyone's stories feel almost familiar. And I didn't know if that title was going to resonate, like when we kind of came up with it. And of course it's named after a pretty light song. And I can't wait to meet all of these wonderful people that we've talk to you virtually. I know it was so fun this last weekend. I actually, I got to see Sun Squabby and, you know, we got to interview Andrew Frost on one of our earlier episodes. So shout out to Frost, who is the tour manager for Sun Squabby. So him and I actually got to hang and it was so much fun. We hung out, we smoked some joints, fucking got down to some tunes and I got to meet the Sun Squabby crew, which was just like, they're all the nicest dudes, you know, and I knew they would be. So it was really fun just to kind of get back out there and go to a real show it like didn't have mass. There was no potting. It like it felt like the real deal, and just to be there. And I've just been been riding that high. You know, I'm just feeling really present. That was Saturday. It was a really big day. Actually, I don't know if I told you this, Elizabeth, but one of my good friends who I think you've known, a- Aja. Yeah. He's Aja and Kalen. Aja actually was in like a scary car accident on Saturday. Oh no. He fell asleep at the wheel and like drifted into the guardrail, but like was miraculously okay. Like nothing oh. was wrong with him. His car's totaled, but. He made it, you know, so I remember he I, I talked to him about that on Saturday and it's just been having, you know, one of those moments where I'm just like, I am so thankful for my friends, you know, you being one of them. I'm like so thankful to have people that I love that much to think about, you know, that absence of just being like, it would just fucking suck. And I'm just so glad to be here and to be present, to be alive, doing what I love. 
with people that I love. And then, you know, like I said, then I saw some Squabby after and just that musical love just further embedded itself in me. And I'm just feeling on top of the world right now. You really can't take people or things or experiences for granted, even music. And I feel like that's something that I probably did because it's one of those things where you don't know what you have until you lose it. And experiencing this last year without the outlet of live music was just, we hadn't had to experience that. And it, it kind of made me appreciate it that much more. And San Francisco today actually finally lifted all of its restrictions. I think the clubs can start operating at a full indoor capacity. I actually went to an indoor show a couple weeks ago to see Mark Farina. He did a three-day run here in San Francisco and it was amazing. And the general manager of Public Works actually loves Pretty Lights. I told him about this podcast. He gave me some cool stickers. We kind of bonded with him over that. So if you're listening, it was great to meet you. And I hope that you bring Daily Bread and Vincent Antone to Public Works. And get on the podcast, bro. We'd love to chat with you. Hell yeah. But I will say that like, I kind of love the tables. I mean, maybe I'll just be like, fuck the tables as soon as I, you know, experience like a full, like, you know, shoulder to shoulder, like sweaty club experience. But like, I kind of love having like my own space. Like, I do it, too. it feels really nice. And I, and I yeah. brought like two of the shows were outdoors and I brought blankets, like you could bring food mm-hmm. in. And I was like, this is amazing. Like bringing a blanket to a club is like the next fucking level, dude. And you can order Uber Eats, like ramen, like whatever the fuck you want. I was like, Jesus Christ, are we in our late twenties or what? (laughs) (laughs) Bringing ramen to the club. (laughs) It's the dream. I'm telling you, if you haven't it. It really is. No, I'm talking shit. I just had ramen for dinner. So I would be absolutely all about that. But yeah, I, uh, I also do like the pods. I like the non-wookery. I'm aging into that as well, where you're like, listen, I'm bringing a blanket to a show. That's my dream. But like in other music news, you know, I am just super bumming that Artifacts has taken a step back. He put up a post saying he's calling an end to the project, which he's been doing for about 10 years. And just uh, I'm happy for him, for Garrett, you know, shout out to you, dude, for doing what it is you feel like you got to be doing. I know how that feels after having kind of made some similar changes myself and sure it wasn't an easy decision to come to but i'm just gonna fucking miss that music and that dude man i feel like he's just been so underrated in our scene like i'm just oh i've always been surprised he never popped the fuck off because everything he's always done has been so top shelf so shout out to you artifacts and thanks for all the memories homie and so consistent too Mm-hmm. just heat everything yeah. and the sad thing is, is that i don't think i ever actually saw him really yeah i don't uh i don't know if he's gonna do any more music i know he's getting into the nft thing with doing some like audio and visual projects so you know whatever that dude does it's gonna be good so you know maybe this isn't goodbye maybe it's just a a see you later kind of deal and another thing that's been floating around the festival scene and social media is some drama about nako but i started to see this petition floating around because I think Nako was booked on a festival lineup and people were asking that he be removed from the, from the festival lineup. And I think he also announced a tour too. Mm -hmm. Called the path forward. And despite several serious allegations of sexual abuse and misconduct that were kind of similar to what we saw with Bass Nectar. Yeah, it was a a really weird thing because I think the timing of it kind of coincided during like the pre-COVID era 
where, you know, obviously compared to the magnitude of base nectar, I think a lot of people kind of either forgot about the NACO thing or got swept to the side a little bit just because, you know, as not as big as NACO is with his fan base and his fan base is very similar to like the very toxic base heads, I think. But yeah, it was a, it was a really crazy thing. Cause I saw the tour got booked and I was like, damn, like that's surprising. You know, I don't know if that's the right move. And then, you know, I was super sad to see my old venue, the West got booked them. And I messaged our the owner in town fire. I was like, I don't know, man. Like that's not a, I don't think that's the move. And then petitions started coming out. There was a lot of people that caused some ruckus in my favorite Facebook group. I don't know if you're in called my drug band is better than your drug band. I'm not in that group. I think I've seen screenshots from it though. Yeah. It's just a bunch of people talking shit, like mostly in the jam scene. So it's like a fun atmosphere. There's like people that love music, just talk shit all the time. But it was very similar in the fact that a lot of people from this group started reaching out to venues directly, you know? So then you saw venues like the higher ground in Vermont, which is a huge staple in the East coast here. They got so much feedback. They pulled their dates. The mission ballroom in Denver pulled their dates, the orange peel in Asheville. (laughs) I was going to say peeled their dates. The orange peel canceled their date. And, you know, I saw those and that's when I messaged owner of the West again. I was like, Hey man, like people are speaking up. Like, you got to cut this show. And then that day they canceled the whole tour, you know? And I think that's the screenshots I sent you that someone had posted and uh, my drug band is better than your drug band of just uh, Nako's personal post and his little secret private Facebook group to his fans. And it was just the language of someone who didn't sound completely aware of the harm that may have caused others. It seemed a lot of the perspective of I have learned, I have grown, I'm ready to show you that I've elevated which is great and it's wonderful. And I think you should feel that way, but it's also kind of endearing to know that enough people are like, yeah, that's how you feel, but you're not going to profit off it, you know, which I absolutely am not with, you know, as I came up in our conversation with DB, you know, it's just when someone has that kind of platform and they misuse it, you know, there are consequences. And I think that the music shocked. It seems that his reaction that people cared and there were consequences to his actions and I'm glad that we, you know, we talk about it a lot, but there are consequences to your actions. And I'm glad to see that, you know, even people in the jam scene, which isn't directly our scene, you know, they are speaking up too, you know, and it's a widespread issue that I think everyone's kind of just taking a solid stand with. So I'm fucking with it, but we've worked with Nako a couple of times, you know, like I know some of the people in that band, I've worked with their tour manager, you know, there's some of the sweetest people, you know, like I've driven around, I know they have goodness in their hearts. So I can't imagine how hard that's got to be for, you know, the other people in that crew. Same with the base nectar thing, you know, it's more than just the one guy, but unfortunately it affects all those directly with them. So definitely thinking about those people, you know, and I'm hopefully they bounce back and find some new projects they can work on. Cause his band is good. You know, Nako's music's never been for me, but musically it's always been fun. You know, I've had a good time at some of their shows. Yeah, it's always hard to know whether you hold the people associated with those artists who have done harm accountable. And that's something that we addressed on our episode today with Stacy. And the thing with Nako, the thing with Bass Nectar, this isn't the first time this has happened within our community, within live music at large, within entertainment, within people who have large platforms with large influences. This isn't the first time that it's happened, and it's certainly not going to be the last. And I know we've talked about this a lot on the podcast. I think our second episode was kind of our initial reactions to the base nectar fallout. I know we just talked about it with DB. And on today's episode with Stacy, we the main topic that we're talking about is to what extent we can separate the art from the artist 
Is it appropriate to do so? How do you do so? When do you draw the line? And in doing so with that conversation, how do you center the survivor? And personally for me, the reason that I want to keep talking about this is because I just don't want people to forget about it. Because I think one thing that comes up on this episode is that the response to allegations like this, it's very cyclical. And, you know, I, I totally participate in that too. We, I think we all do where there's a lot of attention on it. And then it kind of just goes back to normal. And then we kind of just forget about it. And of course, you know, I think we kind of process it and like shift our perspective, like, oh, like base nectar is terrible. And like, I wouldn't support him again. And oh, Nako is also terrible. And like, I would never support him again. And like, I wouldn't, you know, pay for a ticket or like support a venue or a festival that books him. But how do we, how do we stop this? Like, how do we, how do we break the cycle? And then how do we, you know, hold the experiences that we had with those artists in a way that's not harmful? it's really hard. And it's something that's been happening for so long. Like I think Stacy even uses the example of Michael Jackson. And I, and ever since she brought that up, I noticed that I hear him on the radio all the time. And sometimes I'm, I'm like, sometimes like I'll rock out to it for a second. Then I'm like, wait a second, this is Michael Jackson. Like, this is kind of weird. Like, is this right? Is this not right? And it's just like a weird thing that I think has, that just gets normalized after a while. And then I think the cool thing about like this podcast and our community, and I think I say this on this episode, is that like, I think it's niche enough that like, at least within our little community, we can kind of decide for ourselves to what extent we want to hold people accountable and like how we want to respond as a community, even if it's not, you know, the same response, like on a national level, I think we can kind of decide as a group, maybe how we want to respond to stuff like this. Yeah. And I think the general collective consciousness is more in line with the whole, don't be a fucking creep. And, you know, in talking with Stacy today, you know, she's someone who's popped up in our podcast, you know, she had a quick little, um, what's the phrase for what she did for our second episode? I would call it an anecdote personally. Yeah. So in our second episode, you know, Stacy makes an anecdote and we've talked about her a lot just because Elizabeth, she's someone who you look up to and is a big mentor for you and the work you're trying to do and making the music events, a safe space for everybody. And Stacy's been at this for a while. You know, she also um, is a very talented graphic artist. You know, she's made stuff for you. The work she does um, is very beautiful. And I actually, I don't know if we talked about it on our last episode, but she had something featured at the Charles the first event over in Wyoming, like on one of their big screens. I don't remember what it said, but, you know, I was like, oh shit, like Stacy's work's being broadcast here in the community. So, you know, so much love to Stacy. Um, I talk about it in this episode, but like the amount of stuff that I learned from the two of you was fucking really massive, especially for me as a man who like, you know, this hasn't really been my world. You know, I've, I'm definitely in tune with it. And mostly because of like, I'm friends with you personally. And I'm very glad, you know, there's you're a good person who keeps me in check you know there have been times where I've made a flippant remark and you've been like hey and I'm like oh fuck like I don't know where that came from but thank you because I'm also working on changing because we're not all perfect to give you guys some context about when we recorded this episode and I think we delayed the release of this episode by maybe a month because believe it or not we actually recorded our episode with Stacy before we recorded our episode with DB Montana who uh, is behind the evidence against Base Nectar account and we recorded this episode with Stacy before that like really big vice 
dissertation. I can't call it anything but a dissertation because it literally mm. took me 40 minutes to read. I was like, I'm going to read this quick article. And You're a fast like, reader. It took, took me way longer. <laughs> <laughs> I took like an hour and a half off of work. And then I actually do not recommend this for anyone. I watched like the Demi Lovato documentary <gasps> the same night. And I was like, why I do you hate bed. yourself? I, I went to bed. Oh, I, I went to bed so sad. I was like, oh I was God. like, this is terrible. But both are wonderful reads it's just like they're very like emotionally draining draining, especially especially, like the bass nectar one because you know like I think I personally had like a close relationship with the music and that's why we delayed it because one thing that comes up on this episode is the people that kind of make statements fairly and like offer their opinion like an unsolicited opinion shortly after news comes out. And we wanted to be mindful of that because like when I read that Bass Nectar article, I literally like felt my my body was like heavy. And I was like, I'm like, I'm triggered by this. Like I'm upset by this because it's, it's stuff that like, I obviously like don't want to hear. And it's just so much worse than I ever imagined it to be. So we kind of wanted to give it some, some breathing room before we offered commentary and I don't want to call it an unsolicited opinion because it's, it's a weird place to be in right because like we are part of what we do is like we're commentary and this is like a major major story in our scene but we just wanted to give it a little bit of breathing room and really and the I think the crazy part was is that my opinion clearly shifted after we recorded this episode and I think that's what I say was my major takeaway from the episode is that I think we need to give ourselves space for our opinion, for our opinions to evolve and change once we learn new information without feeling guilty. Because I know I say on this episode and I thought about cutting it, but I didn't because I just wanted to be honest with where I was at and I'm not proud of it. But at the time that we recorded, I think I said that there were times where I still wanted to listen to Bass Nectar because that was just like the point that I was at in the process of like ending the relationship with the music. But then once I learned all of the new information, anytime it comes up on shuffle, I'm like, unlike, unlike, like, don't play this artist anymore. Cause like now I'm at a point where I'm like, it's, it's just, I can't listen to it anymore. Like there was a point in time where I could, and I'm not proud of that. Like I probably should have just cut the cord earlier, but as I learned this new information, I was like, this is just, I can't, (laughs) I can't do it anymore. And Hey, if you're not there yet, I'm not trying to tell you like, Oh, if you're, if you're still listening to it, like you're a bad person, like at all, that's just where I'm at with my personal journey. And that's all just to say that like my opinion has evolved since I recorded this episode and like, that's okay. And it's probably going, it's going to continue to evolve. And I think we just, I think we have to give ourselves space without it being so black and white and just being like, you're wrong for thinking this way at one point in your life. Like we all just, we have to Mm -hmm. give ourselves space to do that because that's the only way that we'll grow. Yeah. And I think you can take that whole concept and principle and just make it much macro, you know, like it's not just about music. It's at everything, you know, we're all on our own little journeys. We're all growing. None of us really know what we're doing. You know, some people might have it a little bit more together. You know, maybe you don't feel like you're at where you should be compared to your peers, but that's fine. You know, we're all growing. We're all evolving at our own time. You know, some lessons are sticking for some sooner than others, but we're all just doing our best to make it there. And this shit is tricky. Yeah, and just to give maybe some of our new listeners some more context about who Stacy is. Um, so this is actually our second, well, maybe, no, it's our second Swapcast episode. Um, our first Swapcast episode was with our friends at No Simple Road. And a Swapcast is when we 
you know, kind of release the same episode uh, on different platforms. So her show, her show Sanctuary Radio airs on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. on Tastemakers Media, and you can listen via the Dash Radio app. I typically am not able to tune in exactly at 1 p.m. on Wednesdays, so you can find these episodes on Spotify under Sanctuary Radio. Yeah, and definitely go check out Stacey's work. You know, like we said, um, someone who I've recently come to know and someone Elizabeth's known for a long time, and she's just really good peeps who's doing the right thing for our scene and so before we get into our episode here with Stacey, you know, we do just want to, again, thank you for the old and the new listeners. It's uh, It really means a lot to see our numbers kind of steadily growing, especially as of late. It's fucking weird, you know? There's still most time Elizabeth and I were just talking about this before we hit record, like how it's just bonkers. You know, we expected to do this thing mostly for us, didn't think it would do anything. So the people are out there listening, telling your friends about it. We We really love you and we appreciate you and we're really excited to keep kind of navigating this world and especially now that music's back like we got content ready to roll so you know be sure you do follow us if you don't already on instagram we are at almost familiar pod you can find us on facebook where just if you look up almost familiar you'll find us and if you ever want to reach out via email you know share some kind words anything you want to vent you want to let us know what's on your mind you know we're here for you you could do that at the almost familiar podcast at gmail.com also if you listen to us on Apple, because I know a lot of you do, we appreciate a five-star review or whatever. If you don't think we're worth five stars, you can go ahead and like leave a four or something, but like it'd help. If you're gonna leave like less than five stars though, I want you to leave an actual like shitty review though. Like I want you yeah. to like, you know, I so want so you to do mean better. It. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Mean it. Yeah. If you want to shit on us, really go for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, either five <laughs> stars or I want like at least three to five sentences of like kind of shitting on us i mean i'll probably cry for days and like not release the podcast ever again (laughs) but you know maybe there's a troll out there thankfully you know thankfully we haven't encountered like any mean trolls yet and i'm like very i'm very grateful for that that was actually one of my biggest fears i I don't know why i think it's just my imposter syndrome that yeah that people would just be like who the fuck are these guys but like everyone's been like super nice about it so thank you yeah. And how nice is that? You know, we're just being our authentic selves. And I think that's the cool thing about some of the people that are listening to this. It's a lot of authentic people. So, you know, if you are feeling like uh, talking some shit, I bet you aren't because you're probably a pretty good person. We're really glad you're here listening with us. And so without any further ado, let's get familiar with one of the most authentic people in this entire community, Stacy Forster of Sanctuary Radio. Should we start with some intros? Yeah, let's get it. Yeah. Uh, so I'll go first. My name is Stacy. I use she, her pronouns. I am currently living on the west coast of Canada. And up here, uh, really my whole life is is tied to harm reduction and safer music spaces. And it's been that way for about the last seven years. Well, for 10 years, I've worked for Base Coast, which I always say with hesitancy, like, does anyone know this festival up here? But then it's it, I'm reminded that, oh, lots of people know it. It's actually quite popular now. So I run the harm reduction space for, for Base Ghost. And then in my life outside of that, I have a project called Good Night Out, which works to address sexual violence and rape culture specifically in live music and nightlife. 
And that's kind of a good segue for me because that is how I became connected with you, Stacey, through Good Night Out. Uh, my name's Elizabeth. I am one of the co-hosts of the Almost Familiar podcast. We're a podcast that is attempting to examine what we refer to as neo-hippie music festival culture um, by just hearing people's stories just to try to develop a historical and anthropological perspective. Um, I'm based in the Bay Area. I work for the San Francisco Symphony and... I had one pretty shitty night where I was basically harassed out the door of a nightclub and finally I was kind of like enough is enough. I started doing some research and it didn't take me long to stumble upon Good Night Out and I'm so grateful that I crossed paths with you, Stacey. You've been just such a wonderful um, mentor to me, um, someone that I really look up to. So I'm just really grateful for everything that I've learned from you. And I am Wes Johnson, the other co-host of Almost Familiar. And I met Elizabeth back in college. Um, I became pretty good friends with her fiance, then at the time boyfriend Ethan, and then, you know, started hanging out with Elizabeth and just was attracted to her natural light and energy. And we as a friend group have just been traveling, seeing shows together for the last almost 10 years, which I can't believe because now I feel old saying it out loud. But we are definitely people that just, you know, live in the music scene and music is a very powerful tool and it's been very transformative for me. And I know for Elizabeth, Stacy, I assume it's transformative for you as well. But uh, really grateful to be here and share the time with you and for the opportunity to have this discussion. Thank you. I want to add one more interesting point be- because uh, I-, I feel it's relevant here is, is yes, uh, like music is how we met and harm reduction and, and the idea of safer safer shows but specifically I do want to acknowledge that I had done some work for G Jones and he was always so good about tagging me mm-hmm. anytime someone shared their photos which I work with a lot of artists but he specifically always assigned credit so if someone you know saw the SOS card that we did or the posters he would reply in the comments with my handle and so somewhere along I think you had wrote a blog post and then shared the blog post and tagged me. And I and I feel like he's the only reason I would have found it because I feel like there's probably lots of commentary on those things on the internet and I miss it. And I knew as soon as I read the post that we were going to have some sort of connection because we literally have such a similar approach and like real love for wanting to make music spaces safer for everyone. And yeah, so it's more than just like, we had something in common and we hit it off on the internet. I feel eternally connected to you in some way, which I'm very pleased about. Aw, I feel the same way. I feel like I need your formal like permission and consent to like refer to you as like a mentor in some context, but like I do feel that like connection as as well because I like I said I really have learned a lot from you. Thank you. Which is why I'm so excited to have this conversation. I feel like I've mentally had it in my head for like five years and and had it informally. But today we're going to kind of approach the perhaps prickly topic of um, is it possible to separate the art from the artist? And I think, of course, what brought us together really over the past few years is the fact that some artists that we may have attachment to or have fondness of, of their product have had serious allegations against them. And yeah, so that's what we're going to dive into today. Is it possible to separate? Is it impossible? I thought we we could start by going around with a very short uh, version of our answer before we dive in deep. And I would love to hear your folks' first. 
Yeah, I don't know. I feel like for me, I kind of go back and forth on it because it is just such a hard concept to really grasp with where I think, you know, in particular uh, with bass nectar, I think is the most prevalent example in my life. And not that I was ever like a huge bass nectar fan, but like I really enjoyed his shows. You know, it was a thing that our friends would go to and we'd have these great experiences. And then when you kind of slowly learned who Lauren was as a person, it was really upsetting so I think initially where I'm at now is like I appreciate the music and the memories that I had with my friends. Will I ever support someone that I know is a genuine scumbag? No, I don't think moving forward I can. And I think for me, I think it's certainly possible, but I what I'm grappling with now, and I think it can apply to a lot of different situations, is whether it's appropriate to do so. And I think there's, I think that's probably what we'll get at in this conversation is where do you draw the line? Yeah, I agree. My, my perspective is like a hybrid. Like I I do, I, I think it's possible, but it's hard and it's complicated and it's not necessarily something that's easy to do. But the question is maybe like the better question I think is not can we, but should we, or ought to we consider extracting ourselves and, and how is that done? So thinking back to your long love of music, what is kind of your first experience with maybe learning that that someone, an artist um, in whatever capacity or, or someone, you know, with some social capital was problematic or faced public critique? Who was it and how did it feel? Mm, I think that the first time I remember really hearing about it was probably R. Kelly, which, you know, he has this whole crazy other side of him that I don't think really shocked a lot of people but that wasn't like an artist that really affected my life directly you know I was like oh like I love that song Ignition and like he's a monster but within the scene that we're all a part of I really don't remember when it happened on such a big level for me other than this like bass nectar than the space Jesus thing and the Datsik stuff where I had had Datsik would play our venue a couple of times so I had had run-ins with him and kind of seen who he was after the show and so I had informed my own opinions of just like yikes like this is a guy who I wouldn't want any of my female friends to be around because he gives me the heebie-jeebies and I think he's using his status in ways that you shouldn't. I think for me outside of the electronic music realm it was probably Chris Brown who I just came across at like middle school Mm. dances and people I would listen to you know on the radio and it definitely disturbed me. I don't remember how old I was when I found out. I think there was footage of him assaulting Rihanna, who was another artist that I really liked. And I think at that point in my life, I was able to compartmentalize it. And it's not like I was a big Chris Brown fan by any means, but I think it's easy when the rest of the world moves on so quickly and there's a bunch of media coverage at once, but then his songs are still played on the radio and he's still booked in venues. And then Within our community, in addition to Datsik and Space Jesus and Bass Nectar, um, if you listen to the Almost Familiar podcast, you'll know that Wes and I are really big Pretty Lights fans. And um, one of his collaborators, uh, I think his name was Dwayne Juby, he was a rapper that would um, perform with him sometimes. And then it came to light that he had sexually assaulted Um, And I think roofied, I don't remember, I don't want to put words in people's mouths, but he had definitely sexually assaulted several members of the community. Um, And then it was, it definitely made me feel uncomfortable and upset. I appreciated the community's response to it, but it's just profound disappointment. It's not obviously quite the same 
as someone getting accused of sexual assault but my first feeling with of like oh no but what like I love them um because I am a little bit older than you when I was a teenager I was obsessed with like Cole and Nirvana and I and I think after Kurt Cobain died all of these theories came out that she had something to do with it and then it became very apparent that she had her own struggles and I just I looked up to her so much as a teenager and so just that fall from idol tree was was really hard to process uh, I do think it's important to acknowledge that this has been happening all throughout history. The, the difference now is that we have the internet, right? Like you folks mentioned R. Kelly and Chris Brown, but obviously it goes way back before that. Like Johnny Cash wasn't great to women. Sid Vicious wasn't great to Nancy, although we romanticize that relationship, you know, in punk culture. There's, you know, murmurings about James Brown, about John Lennon. Um, I was a child when Michael Jackson was you know, really, really popular. Not that he ever wasn't really popular. And so that came out when, when I was a kid. And I, I think it kind of um, brings up something that you've mentioned, Elizabeth, around what role does influence play? Because especially when it comes to someone like Michael Jackson, we can't ever undo his contributions to music and how he really changed music, no matter how severe the allegations are and those two things are always in in tension with each other and so yeah I, I know you had some thoughts around that Elizabeth yeah it's something that I'm struggling with as I think about the future of this podcast because if one of our intentions is to establish a historical perspective on this community personally I think it's arguable that Base Nectar had an enormous influence on this community, that he was arguably one of its pioneers. So what I wonder now is, is it appropriate for us to acknowledge that? And then at what point does that become inappropriate? Yeah, I agree. And then to piggyback off what you had said, Stacey, about Courtney Love, or you even mentioned the word, you know, coming off of that idol tree phase with her, where I think at least in the confines of our scene in the music world, it is so prevalent. I don't think you have, you know, the idol tree without that in a sense, you know, and it's, I think it's great. The paradigm shift that our scene is seeing now where people are being called out, you know, like Elizabeth, when you were talking about Juby, like how quick PLF was just like, Nope, like he's done. He's out. We're not speaking that like that's unacceptable because it is important to realize that these are people. You know, and people have bad sides to them and they have things that they're working through. And I think it's important that we all remember that at the end of the day, we're all people just because you might be more known doesn't mean you have any sort of hall passes that you get to enact on. Yeah, I agree. And and to go back to kind of your vision for for your podcast around collecting like an anthropological, did I say that right? Yes. Perspective on on the show is it is possible, I think, if we think even about the founding of of Canada or the founding of America that we tend to really romanticize, we can now look back on that and say, whoa, that was extremely pro problematic, but here we are, but it is our story. And I think that we're allowed to do that with artists. I think that for a long time, artists were held to this degree, like, you have to remember we're a society that's really built on on positivism or like believing that there's this objective reality that you can inherently prove and it's separate from emotion and it's separate from bias and therefore art is separate from those things too 
And I just, I don't think that's possible, but that's kind of like the culture we're steeped in, in that it is possible to compartmentalize. And yeah, I just really hope we shift away from that, honestly. I think one unique, I feel like opportunity is the wrong word because usually opportunity is a positive connotation, but I think something positive will come out of it is that what I think is really unique about our little niche subculture, whether it's Space Coast, whether it's like lightning in a bottle, like any of this like transformational festival culture is that in some ways it definitely reflects a lot of the systemic issues of like our default world to use a burning man term but i also think that the most i'll use air quotes like woke people that i have found in this community well just in my life are part of this community so i think this is kind of the first time in my life that i've had the chance to kind of choose for myself what how am i going to respond instead of you know being a kid and being like oh i just see the the rest of the music industry moving on and still kind of not celebrating Chris Brown, but like still featuring him kind of as if nothing happened. But within our community, because it's kind of niche and I don't want to say a bubble or separated from the rest of the world, it kind of is in a way, but I do feel like we kind of have or that I have a choice for how I want to move forward and like address these allegations and integrate them. Yeah, I agree. Because I think as much as we like to think that music festivals or this particular culture is its own utopia and bubble, it's it doesn't exist in a vacuum. And also, it is capitalist. Even knowing we can feel that we had the greatest life transformation at a festival and through music, it's still, at the end of the day, the music industry is a capitalistic um, industry. And capitalism works hand in hand with sexism and hand in hand with white supremacy. And so as kind of an agent within those systems, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head, Elizabeth. It's up to you to form your own relationships and kind of act as informed as you can participating in that in that system. Um, if you're comfortable, I would love to talk a little bit more about, because I'll enter into this conversation um, knowing that really like the fallout of Bass Nectar was what brought us together, but I have to fully acknowledge that I, I was never, I acknowledge his presence in the scene, but that, that wasn't my kind of taste for music. So I think I would probably know the song he remixed of Ellie Goldings and that's about it in terms of like the music. So I'm wondering if we could spend a bit of time kind of unpacking um, now that we're months away from us last talking about it um, how it really felt to maybe like shift that relationship I won't say end I'll let you explain it how it feels to you but yeah how was that for you it was definitely challenging for a variety of reasons and I feel guilty admitting this but it's it's just the truth and I did not want to believe the allegations at first that's how I don't even know the word for it I deep I was into it I mean I wasn't the biggest Bass Nectar fan out there but it was a huge part of my life it was I didn't identify with it as much as some people did but I think one of the ch most challenging parts for me is that it really helped with my healing process and as a rape survivor myself to have to process that someone that 
was a sexual predator not only caused harm, but also was somehow able to aid me in my own healing process is something that's just super complicated, super challenging for me to unpack. Another part of it was just feeling like I was brainwashed. I had a long conversation with a good friend of mine um, that I met through the Base Nectar community, and we were like, were we in a cult? Because it definitely felt a little cultish. (laughs) There were definitely elements of it, and that's something I'm still trying to unpack. But to be completely honest with you, I... I feel like the missing link is experiencing festival culture and live music without his presence, because that's what I haven't had to come to terms with yet is, you know, this happened during the pandemic. So I haven't had to go through like festival season without him or, you know, go through a year of not gathering with my friends to go to go see him. So that that's kind of where I'm at. And again, to be honest with you, it's not something I feel great about, but there are times where I still feel inclined to listen to his music. And I don't know, I don't know what the right thing to do is about that. I don't know if that's appropriate. I feel, I feel guilty, but that's just the honest truth. I can't stand here and be like, oh, I immediately wrote him off. It's just, it has been a process. Yeah, I mean, it's really challenging. And I think you said something really important. It's like the scariest part about it was like, you know, he had this power over people and it was at times a very positive impact. So then for this, the most negative kind of energy and darkness to be surrounding him, it was weird, but I didn't think it was too off brand because I had remembered like seeing him go off on Twitter and like how he puts down some people really quickly. And that didn't sit well with me. You know, I remember driving to Red Rocks for Pretty Lights one year, it was 2018. And he like was just shitting on this guy for being Christian and this Christian guy raised a point. He said, you know, like a lot of your friends are like, I get that you don't support it, but like, you don't have to be so outwardly rude to us. And he was like, well, fuck you. And I was just like, oh, like this guy is not the man who he preaches to be. And I think that was one of the first like really gleaming moments of that. So when this controversy came out, like you said, it's it was really hard to know what was true. And it seemed like it could be because just based off what I had seen from him before, he just hadn't shown consistency on, you know, just a moral level. But then as more and more came out and it was just there was no avoiding it, I was just it was really weird to see someone just pivot like that from being totally beloved, just almost hated by everyone. But unfortunately, I think there's still people that support him. If you go on the subreddit and stuff, there was a big group that were trying to actively dox the women that had come out and just people who would not believe it, no matter how much evidence was out there. So he definitely had a fervently loyal community. Yeah, I think Wes brings up an important point that it's important to acknowledge is that people who harm people are not always bad. And I think that there was a thread of that in in what you were getting at, Wes said, is that we tend to think of people who cause harm, whether they're chronic abusers or, or, you know, people who harm someone once is that they are these monsters that always look like monsters and we'll be able to recognize them and we have to remember people especially serial predators um, obviously have elements of them that are positive to attract people to be enigmatic and and some of those may be genuine and some of those may be part of their patterns of abuse or an identity they've constructed so I don't I want to give people grace when they say things like, I didn't believe them at first, or 
or you know it took me a little while to come around and and all of that is completely okay i don't think that there's a set path that you're supposed to feel a certain way when you learn someone you idolized is maybe not all you thought they were going to be i think that happens in real life cases of abuse too is there's this moment of this person is not who i thought they were even when they don't have star power behind them your comment about the reddit thread i think is something to pick up here because something that interesting happened that when we were um and obviously we structure our podcast in the same way we kind of both make show notes but also go you know don't script anything too much and in addition to having a shared doc with show notes i also kind of have just a little scribble notepad and on my scribble notepad i had wrote stages of grief and then when i opened up our shared document today about show notes you had written stages of grief and I, I do think for folks who aren't familiar with the stages of grief, um, this is a work. I think originally Dr. Kubler-Ross, who was a nurse, I think, who went on to become a physician, but I don't want to maybe misattribute that, very um, renowned person in the world of grief, has really theorized loss and grief and death and argues that people go through, I think it was initially five, I think it's actually up to seven now, but that people can cycle through very predictable stages in different orders, they can ping pong back and forth. And I think that Reddit or social media in general is almost like this living ethnography of people in their own moment in the stage of grief when something like this happened. It happened with Datsik, it happened with Basenecker, it happened with Space Jesus. You can find all of those five slash seven stages in any comment thread um, on a social media feed, except that the angry ones, because anger is a stage of grief, fuel the a algorithm. So it's it's can be quite, there can be quite a lot of vitriol and um well first of all any comments about the stages of grief i think we'll back up a bit i think i kind of described them when i was answering your other question but i i would say right now i'm kind of stuck in the bargaining phase of like well you know i would obviously never go see him again like i would be so angry if i saw him on a festival lineup but like can i enjoy his music in my own house privately. I don't know. I'm I'm that's just that's just where I'm at. And then gosh, what are the other ones? There's like denial and anger. I mean, definitely denial at first, like not wanting to believe it was true, not only with the allegations, but of all of the other stuff you would hear about him, about how he would steal people's music and was just generally just not a nice person, never crediting his sources and definitely anger, especially I don't want to use like a really strong word, but I do kind of think he's a coward for not responding to Mimi Page's open letter, for example. I At a certain point, I'm just like, I just kind of think that he's a coward. I'm angry that he just dropped the grant that I applied for that I worked really hard on that you really helped me a lot with. It was, it was really good. Thank yes. you. you. You really helped me put it together. Yeah, it really was. Thank you. I'm just, I'm angry that that never came to fruition, not because I thought I deserved to win, but because someone did. Someone had a great idea and that money could go to help people, especially to helping resolve some of the harm that he did. So I'm just, I'm kind of floating between all of those. And then I think, I'm kind of between bargaining and acceptance right now. And then I think eventually once live music comes back, I'll probably be, go through depression and just be like, damn, like I miss the feeling that his music gives me. I will always miss that feeling. It was never, 
it was never about him. It was about the community. It was about my friends and that that's kind of what I want to celebrate eventually if it's appropriate with this podcast is like his crew that never got enough credit. Like it wasn't him that built it. He stole everything. A lo- he stole a lot of stuff. He did some stuff, but like I kind of want to celebrate the people that like didn't get the credit in the first place. Yeah, I um, I think it's a really great point you bring up, Stacy. And I had honestly never even thought of attaching the stages of grief to this. But now, as you said, I was like, of course, like, because for people, it is that real, you know, that feeling that like I attuned to like losing with like relationships, whether it's familial or on a friendship level, I had never even thought to equate it to there. But it is true, you know, in those comment sections, you will see people living through all the stages. And then, you know, with Bass Nectar, again, going back to something you said, where when I think of capitalistic artists or artists that like cash in off of that whole regime, I don't think of anyone else more than I think of him, where I think his entire business model became very cash grabby. And then just when he shut down, it was so unfortunate, like how big his little empire or business was because there were people working on the grants that you were working on elizabeth there were the people that were the stage productions and the managers who were all doing great things now i'm sure but it was just it was really crazy it was this whole machine because it like you said the music was way more than him but he was just like the singular most important part of it which is just so wild to me yeah i i think that comes back to the whole idea of I know it happens in every genre, but maybe it's because I'm immersed in electronic music specifically these days is like how swiftly and rapidly these people and it is mostly like white straight men who are instantly elevated to like this idol tree status like Elizabeth, a very common thing I heard was like, was was I in a cult specifically in reference to this? And so how does it happen that the industry can just, you know, one day you're playing shows, I'm sure it wasn't overnight, but it feels like, yeah, these white dudes are just pivoted to like, can do no wrong, have so much power, have so much access, have, you know, be surrounded by yes men, which is definitely something I want to talk about in a little bit, but just are surrounded by people that will kiss your ass and turn a blind eye to many perhaps warning signs, if not outright behavior, like how when I'm on a bad day I'm like burn it all down we gotta start this industry from scratch and then other days I'm in the more hope part of the cycles of grief and that there is this reconstruction that happens and it's going to be better and obviously it's going to be better without that dark influence I actually have a question for you based off of that all of these yes men do we hold them accountable or to what extent do we hold them accountable I 100% hold them accountable. And I think, I know know we're going to talk about kind of call out Instagram accounts in a bit, but something I've come to learn now that I've had the curtain peeled back on the industry that I didn't have even four years ago, right? In the last four years, I have been invited into inner circles and inner spaces in the industry. And I, my biggest takeaway is that no one in this industry that has any level of success is operating on their own. They're not. They're not making, obviously, they're making choices for themselves around intimate relationships and all of that. Um, But they're rarely alone. They have, you know, a booking agent. They have a tour manager. They have their agent agent. They have merch people. They have a photograph who, photographer who's literally getting paid to document so much of tours. Like, so do I hold the people around them accountable? To some degree, I do. And 
I mean, obviously, they're, they're, again, it comes down to capitalism, right? Like your, your artists are making you money and, and we're in that system and people ultimately make choices for themselves. But the debt six, that prime example, because when that came out, remember we saw the, uh, like the all access lanyards with, with Tulsa written on, like, that's the perfect example to me of many people knowing something wasn't right, even if they didn't know how wrong it was knowing something wasn't right and helping and kind of giving predators access. So yeah, that's why I say that. What about you? Yeah, I think that really ties into the concept of yes men, or I think you just call them for what they are, and enablers, where the Tulsa Pass, I remember when they were there, because, you know, they came to our show, and they were like bragging about it, you know, and it wasn't just Troy, it was his whole crew and they're like Tulsa, and I was like, "Oh, like this is for Syracuse. Like, do we have to?" And he goes, "No, it's for the for the girls." You see how it spells backward? And I remember just reading it and just being like, "Yo, y'all are the worst." Like, and it was the whole crew, you know. And like you said, I don't think it's a very tough thing because it's situational. So, like, I don't always think that the yes men or enablers are that directly responsible, but in that situation in particular, you know, there's no denying how responsible it was. You know, I remember them giving them to like some of my friends, you know, and I was like, "Ooh, like, I don't I don't know if you should go back there because <laughs> I was scared for them because like, I don't know when you see people that are just that willing to let you see that side of them, which I think, you know, base nectar hid for a long time. It's immediate red flags. So in that situation, I was glad that they were so prevalent, but it's hard because they're not always. That's a great point in that. Yeah, if someone is being that brazen with rape culture, that's for sure a red flag. And I think the music industry equated those things with like the rock and roll lifestyle that said in air quotes, even knowing it applies to other genres other than rock and roll, but like the whole idea of the groupie and getting young women backstage, like, and writing Tulsa on their past, like it's just rock and roll. And I think that the position we are especially at now, but have been at for a long time is to challenge it and more people challenging it and saying, Ooh, that's a yikes or don't go back there. Um, the better positioned we are to prevent these things from happening. Definitely. And it's people like you who are actively trying to get people to integrate policies to avoid this kind of behavior in the first place. That's, that's, what's going to change it. Hopefully. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Policy and like culture change. Yes. Like I think that uh as you saw when we co-hosted our largest workshop to date and one of the highlights of a very grim time in 2020 uh was the workshop we shared together in that it's not policy is extremely important but it's only as good as the culture it exists in. And so the I'm pretty sure like you saw it in the workshop. I see it in every workshop. There is a moment in the workshop where the, the dots connect for people. And, and you can, I've done this workshop so many times and I can still see it even over Zoom is there's at least one person who's having that moment of, oh, having ladies get in free nights or whatever mild, set in quotations, example of rape culture is contributing to a bigger problem and you can see it click in their heads and it's one of my favorite moments in a workshop because it fuels my hope like okay the more people that realize these microaggressions contribute they don't cause base nectars and they don't cause dat, dat six 
but they do create a culture where women and you know folks of marginalized identities are treated as entertainment for the party and all of these things are connected totally and i think one thing that good night out and all of these workshops do a great job of and hopefully encourage people to do more of is to be proactive rather than reactive because that is the problem that I've been seeing and I'd love to get your your take on this Stacy is that with like that six space Jesus and base nectar it's like there's this huge wave of momentum where people are like oh my god I had no idea that this is a problem and then people get upset they want to help but then the moment passes and then it kind of all goes back to normal. So I, I, the one thing that I really hoped to come out of the base nectar thing is that since he was like arguably the most powerful person in EDM, or at least one of the most powerful people, I was like, maybe this is it. Maybe base nectar has to get canceled in order for something to change. But I, I worry that it's not going to happen because I, you know, I don't see anyone talking about it anymore. Yeah, I have a lot of I have a lot of thoughts about this because I have now been through four cycles, I guess, of this. So first of all, I want to acknowledge how dark it is to see someone start to get called out and know by how many Twitter notifications I have in the morning that Good Night Out is going to get very busy. Like that is it's an uncomfortable reality to sit with and it's something that I'm honestly I'm sick of like I am happy when our requests shoot up and when I'm doing three workshops a day but I'm I'm honestly like angry now for four call outs in that because people seem to like promise like it's gonna be different this time like like we all got to do better it's predictable and it's and it's frustrating because I just see people saying that that it's going to change and then um, for whatever reason we fall back into our default lazy capitalistic rooted in white supremacy rooted in sexism ways like when it's a buzzword it's trendy and people are on board but when it comes down to the nitty-gritty work and I think that translates to all movements you know anti-racist movements movements for queer rights like there is this kind of like yes I'm on board because it's trendy right now but asking people to show up is a different question. So I do have a question for the both of you kind of talking about the call out culture. And I think it's an interesting thing because where does that start with you? Like I know right now, I don't know if you're familiar with what's going on with Chris Dyer, but I feel like there's another really big moment in time where, um, are you guys both familiar with that? Or should I elaborate a little bit more? I think it's worth giving a quick synopsis, maybe. Sure. So the general gist from what I've picked up, um, so this is like a loose paraphrasing, so not legally tight, but Chris Dyer um, had a friend who was a shaman, who was a male, who uh, virtually sexually assaulted a woman by coercing her into masturbating in front of him, and she didn't fully want to. And then Chris Dyer had reached out to her saying, hey, like, please don't blow this up. Like, he's a good guy. He's helped so many people, you know, a lot of the same rhetoric that you'll hear with these situations where that's where I heard about it, you know, where it's this really uncomfortable thing where this guy used his power for a really wrong reason. And then Chris Dyer essentially was trying to cover that up. And now people are starting to come out with him 
or come at him and bring this to light. And I, I think it's, you know, you said one of those phrases of like, before that moment passes by. So how do you engage with something like this before it's too late? It's hard to know how to engage with this one, honestly. I watched both videos. I watched, I think her name is Sina. I watched her video first, and then I watched Chris Dyer's response. And I just found myself asking the entire time, like, who asked you to make this? And I don't know why he's engaging in this discourse that it's, I don't really think it's his place to speak. And with this in particular, it's challenging and a little bit different than some of the situations we've been talking about because he's not the one that actively did the harm. He just happens to kind of be caught in the middle. And I think that's kind of a, a an interesting, I don't know if segue is the right word, but I think people, I personally haven't, but I think people tend to find themselves in this position often where what do you do if you're caught in the middle? How do you tell your friend like, hey, that like wasn't cool. You need to do better. Like, this is why you're wrong. Like, I think someone... I think it's an opportunity to call him in because someone in that community has been called out. But I think this is an opportunity to call him in and be like, that response wasn't the right way to address this. But I just don't know who that person is because all it, all that's happening right now is him just being called out in the comments for making a bad video that's harmful to others, that's perpetuating the harm. I realize this wasn't the point of you sharing this story, but if I think... We're talking about kind of acknowledging unchecked power. And I don't know any more than like, I haven't watched the videos. I know who Chris Dwyer is. I followed, I read some stuff on social media and then was like, that's enough trash fire for one day. But I'm assuming his shaman friend is a white man hosting virtual ayahuasca ceremonies, which in itself maybe acknowledges a bit of like weird power dynamics that exist which is a whole other conversation, I realize. But to answer your question, I think if we remain survivor-centered, that will set us on a good path. And obviously none of us know what conversations happen between that survivor and anyone else. But I have a feeling that if, if Chris had done some consultation, it maybe would have informed something that was a bit more comfortable and that, that is my number one advice is I think that the people always want to rush in and do the right thing and not make it worse and they forget to consult the person who's at the core of it like if if our if our focus is on ourself or on the person who caused harm it's in the wrong place from a harm reduction message or from a harm reduction standpoint so, th so that's one kind of thing I also think that as a society, we need to get more comfortable with shame. Um, for anyone who's read up anything around affect theory, which has its pros and it, and it has its cons, but affect theory is really rooted in the concept that there are like five major, not even emotions, but like analogs of emotion that propel us to do what we do as humans. And one of the biggest motivating affects we have is shame or fear of shame. We as a species do not like feeling shame. And so we do all we can to avoid it. And it's also highly contagious. So as soon as we're associated with someone who has maybe done something shameful, we feel that shame and we maybe do things 
to get rid of that shamey feeling without really thinking them through. And I think that that has a lot to do with why people instantly put out these wordy statements, even when they're not the person who's done the bad thing. They're just like adjacent to it. So they put up a thing that you have to scroll like 20 times to read the whole thing. I do feel like some part of that is our aversion to shame. And so I think that as a society, we need to get more comfortable with that feeling so that we can make maybe safer choices in the aftermath of a bad act. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I think that shame has really taught us like, like shame is I am this and guilt is I did this. And we as a society, I think lump them together and we really, really push shame away instead of, yeah, sitting with it and learning from it. This, this leads to another question I had for you, because I've noticed, at least with this Chris Dyer situation right now, and then with Base Nectar, um, Ilgates made that rather long video, not necessarily defending Lauren. It was, I don't want to say wishy-washy, but I, I don't really know what to make of the video. So, okay, this is a two-part question. The first is that, is it appropriate for colleagues to come out with statements on the accused behalf? Because what I've noticed, not only in these colleague statements, but also in the weird public-facing statements that come from the accused, is that they're not survivor-centered. Like, Chris Dyers was just like, I don't want to see this affect the community and my reputation. And I watched, I rewatched Datsik's, um, I don't, oh my god! I don't even, it's not an apology video. It's just like, this is where I've been for a year and a half. And this was really hard for me. I've had to do a lot of this and that. And none of none of these statements center the survivors so i'd love to hear from you whether it's a colleague speaking on the behalf of the accused or of the situation or the person that did the harm coming out with a public facing statement what's what's the appropriate way to do that i want to back up and say that that datsik video that came out like whatever it was like two years ago i think now was a master class in And I don't claim to know what the right thing is, but it's definitely not that. For every reason you acknowledged, and also it's like in his studio. Like, are you going to give an apology? Are you going to be like, hey, I'm about to drop the sick album? (laughs) Like, it was, I'm not laughing because it's funny, but it's just like, I remember I was in the airport flying to Detroit for a workshop and I was like, oh my God, why is Death Sick trending right now? And then I had to watch it like twice because I was like, is this a pair? Like, this is not for real. Anyway, to get to your question, first of all, I don't think that there is any one path to doing this correctly. I don't really want to weigh in on like what is appropriate or what isn't. However, there are some things that I think could be reconsidered. And one of them is the instant statement. Like, like not even an hour has passed and you've already crafted whether you're the harm doer or whether you're connected to the harm doer i'm always wary of things that come out right away and again to to go back to affect theory i realize because it's like i i don't like this feeling of shame so i need to say something and so personally I'm wary of statements that come out too quick, and I'm also wary of calling for statements immediately. So from, you know, also survivor advocates, I think that there is a window 
where people could possibly benefit from connecting with the survivor if they're open to it or sitting with the yucky feeling and rethinking you know your past relationship with this person if you're kind of connected to a person who's done harm and just really like sitting with your thoughts and reflections rather than cranking something out in what is likely a very activated and triggered state even if you're not a person who has lived experience with anything similar before you still are writing from an activated state um i've now forgotten the two parts of your question so yeah so stay oh yeah come with the side coming out to kind of defend isn't the right word but like state your position in it yeah i generally it's a no for me but i'm not i don't like to make broad sweeping generalizations i i've been reading this really great it's a workbook for transformative justice practitioners called fumbling towards repair and there's a great line in there that says an apology generally like a, a good one there are elements of it but um there should be like it shouldn't be too long like if you can't say it succinctly then you're maybe saying too much and this whole page I just want to photograph and send to so many people who have like centered themselves wrote 20 page dissertations about their work with an artist who's now been called out like and like you said Elizabeth I don't see remnants of a survivor anywhere in any of them it's just trying to make themselves feel less yucky I don't know if that answers your question it does definitely and just for our listeners where can we access this workbook if we want to get it do you have to be part of a class like a registered class to take it or can you get it you know from a bookstore a website or something yeah so it's available through ak press which is like an anti-capitalist anarchist kind of book press i got it at the beginning of the pandemic and i'm not being dramatic when i say it has changed my life i initially wanted to buy a second one because it's a workbook so you literally do do a lot of reflections and think about harm and think about responses to harm and I as soon as I opened it wanted to buy a second one so that I could have one to treasure and then have one to write in and then I started writing my answers in a notebook and then I was like nope it needs to be documented in these pages so I started writing it but in it but it took a long time <laughs> I think that could be a really interesting thing too to reevaluate several years down the road and just see how your opinions and things change to that nature because like how I'm thinking about both this Chris Dyer and the Ilgate situation now has totally changed just from the concept of realizing that those are people going through grief themselves, you know, where they are, I'm sure angry and in denial with, you know, their friends, you know, I think Elizabeth used the term colleagues, but like, you know, Ilgate's obviously felt a very strong kinship towards Lauren. And I think that must've been the most confusing part for him. Like you could feel that from him when he was talking and then, you know, just to see how it progressed after that sucks. Yeah, it is confusing. And I and I think that's probably one reason why it kind of makes sense to wait to make a statement. Like you were saying, Stacey, I don't think any of us are in a position to make any kind of statement if we're if we're stressed, if we're confused, if we're triggered. And it's important to be mindful of that. Yeah, and, and I also think that, like, especially folks who are firmly anchored in a career in the music industry, it's rarely actually their feelings. Like, by the time it hits social media, 
it probably has gone through a through a few filters whether that's friends or other people in the industry or your manager especially if you're the person caused that's caused harm and so there is an element of like and we could speak to this in general about social social media but like authenticity like rarely have i seen a response video that's been like oh i i'm with this person on this emotional journey i feel it like many times i'll fire up one of these ones whether it's datsic or otherwise i'll be like okay this is such a canned emotionless missing the point statement that clearly no one who has experienced violence laid their eyes and ears on the the pr element of these things is also very real and we can't we can't forget that absolutely and this it kind of leads to another question i had for you about not only the authenticity of the response but the authenticity and maybe that's not the right word of the initial call out because when you when you just said that, I thought back to Sina's video, who's the the woman that called out the the shaman, and it's it's heartbreaking, and it's the first time that I've really seen a survivor record an Instagram video of her just being like this experience really traumatized me, and it gave me a very different feeling than the evidence against Instagram pages, whether it was Space Jesus, Space Nectar. I think there's one for snails now, probably one for Yeti, and. I, I'm just curious to get your take on those evidence against Instagram pages as a way of calling people out. This is a tricky one for me. And I, I do want to preface what I say with, we have lived in a society that for so long and still continues to in many ways has denied survivors a voice or an avenue or has actively tried to silence them or harm them, that I understand why these Instagram accounts exist. And this channel of communication has existed for a long time in various forms over the internet, right? Like people who experience patriarchal violence have long found ways to warn others of their abuser. It's just we now live in a time where the internet is helpful to do that. That being said, I I worry, and I worry about this in general, like what social media has turned us into, in that it's so easy to forget that there's human survivors behind those stories and there's humans reading those stories. And, and I mean, ultimately, not to be too pie in the sky, I want a system change where like, that's not our resort, like an anonymous post on an Instagram account. Like I want real true maybe not carceral um but real true paths to justice for survivors because again i'm not sure that the long game those instagram accounts are going to get us to a music industry that doesn't tolerate sexual violence does that make sense like i see their value in them i just i wish it was different because i've yet to witness a long game outcome that feels good for everyone either like the survivors who shared their story that way get so shit on and the the internet becomes so toxic or you know if police is an avenue that feel good for people like they can't take actual evidence off on an instagram account like that's that's not how that avenue to justice works either so yeah conflicted would be my short answer what about you 
The one thing that confuses me a little bit about those accounts is how they can be so out of context. It's a lot of like screenshots of text and stuff. And, but at the same time, it's like, and what I really regret about the whole base nectar situation is that I, I just wish I had believed it sooner. I'm just, I'm, I feel guilty that I didn't, that I required context to believe survivors because when you do look at the numbers, it's like maybe 97 or, or actually the numbers, only 3% of, of accusations are false. So I should be believing it by default and I, and I just feel guilty for not doing it. But yeah, I agree with you that it would be great to get to a place where there's justice for survivors. But what I have not been able to wrap my brain around, whether in my personal life or what in these, in the music industry accusations is what, if anything, looks like not only justice, but perhaps rehabilitation for the harm doer. This is where I personally at am at in my journey of exploring sexual assault and sexual violence and a future um, that is maybe hopeful that it won't exist one day. And everyone is at, at a different part on this journey. And I don't claim that my part, my point on this journey is correct or permanent. But I am thinking about the long game, really. Like I am a I'm a feminist and I'm an anti-violence activist because I inherently think that things can change and for things to change it means that I believe that people can change and um, I know that that's really uncomfortable for some people and it's not appropriate for every case but I wouldn't do this work I wouldn't talk about these sexual violence all day long for some weeks when we're in a wave of call outs if I didn't think that things could change that seems like a very not great life to be just be doing something and not believing that things can change. And so what comes with that is that I do believe that people can can learn and grow and it doesn't fix harm and it doesn't undo harm, but they can move their world paradigm and their relationship to power and their understanding of consent in a direction that doesn't harm anyone. I do believe that that can happen. And this isn't a separate conversation from cancel culture. I I really struggle with this moment in time where those things are seen as two not overlapping circles. And if we think about the case like any of the EDM DJs we've talked about, is that part of that opportunity to rehabilitate, if that is the path, does involve removing your access and the power that allowed you to harm those people. You need to be outside of that position in order to do that growth or that learning. And also survivors deserve a window of their life to heal without you being in it all of the time. And so... Some may call that cancel culture, but that also is a part of, you know, transformative justice and accountability and all of that. Both of those things can exist in the same conversation. What you said had just got me thinking about something and that I, I, you kind of answered it in a way when someone is called out like that and they are doing this transformative work. Is there a point where you think that they can return to the position they were in before or do you think it's just 
wash your hands and then, you know, thank you for the memories. I hope you grow, but I don't care to see you again. Yeah, I mean, personally, I have yet to see a process work. So I think that the first high profile person to participate in a process I think that's going to be such a model and I look forward to that day. When people kind of ask, like, what does an apology look like? I realize the degree of harm isn't the same, but I don't know if any of you follow um, Dan Harmon and Harmontown. On his podcast, I think now, like, four years ago, um, he did an apology for a woman that he had sexually harassed on Parks and Recreation. And it, to this day, is, to me, an example of... At least the apology part of it, obviously none of us know him personally and can speak to if he's, you know, now treating people better. And so that is one example I continually turn to of like taking some downtime, not working in the industry that provided you with power and access, connecting with the survivor and issuing what I perceive as a true, authentic, well-written apology. And then... I think he got sober for a while and as because that, that was part of the issue and then, you know, slowly started working on rebuilding his career. In the music industry, I feel like specifically like this genre of EDM, it does seem very quick. Like you're kind of here one minute and you're not the next. And if you're one in the million who gets that chance and you let that power corrupt you and you take advantage of women, part of me is like there are... are great non-men, great women, you know, great non-binary, great non-white people who would kill for that position. So should you get to reoccupy it again? That's a question I'm kind of wrestling with. But on the flip side is that I think that maybe once you came to light about your, your relationship with power, you might not, you might not even want to come back once you've really analyzed the conditions that allowed you to get away with what you did. So yeah, I don't know because I haven't seen it in this community is really what my answer is. I haven't seen anyone try in a way that feels comfortable. I want to see more non-men in the industry on all levels. Um, And I'd rather advocate for them than focus my time trying to get people who were unsafe in the industry back into it. I I had one quote I wanted to read, and I, I don't know kind of if it'll end up in the episode. Maybe it will. Um, but I'd love your reaction to this. Because in kind of prepping, I did kind of a, a, like I usually do, kind of Google the topic and see if there's any little quotes or examples I want to weave into the episode. And there was there was an article on Pitchfork talking about the exact this kind of exact topic about separating art from artist. And I found an interesting quote, and I'm going to read it to you, and I would love to hear instantly kind of what your reaction is. So it says, when you choose to expose yourself to the songs of an abuser, you are also subjecting yourself to a sustained whisper campaign for their inherent virtuousness, for the empathy, for the tortured humanity lying within them. Seeing humanity in all humans, even murderers and abusers, can be a powerful and clear-eyed practice. It might be what some have called radical empathy. It may even be music's highest function if we allow it to happen, permitting the existence of beauty within deep ugliness, persuading us to remember that all humans share the mystic and strange impulse to make music or partake in it. 
I feel like that quote is so specifically like perfect in like this weird poignant way for bass nectar because the thing that draws me to his music is finding beauty in the ugliness it's because it's like this chaotic it's ugly he literally has a song called ugly it's like it's chaotic but like then there's like these weird little beautiful moments and that's I never found that with anyone else but it's it, it's exactly what I'm experiencing when I listen to his music now because I, I get this weird feeling where I'm just like I don't know like I don't, how can I do this like by by still listening to it I do feel like I'm kind of Ex- not exonerating him in a way, but in a way, it, I I kind of feel like I am. Yeah, I know, I know exactly what you mean, and um, I think the part of that quote that really stuck with me is just that there is a sort of ugliness that's kind of coming from within the artist, or you know, I really believe, and it's something that someone told me in response to, I dealt with like this really big thing with my mom, and we had a fifteen year like very artificial relationship where. Just this year, I repaired it and kind of realized that she is a person who has so much trauma that, like, was around before I was a kid. And I just, I never really understood that part of who she was until recently, where I just had to kind of let that go. But uh, something someone told me when that initially happened was that hurt people hurt people. And that you see a lot of ugly come from an even darker place. So I think it's... I mean, obviously it doesn't negate any of the bad that happens, but I think it is a really interesting and important concept to know that that kind of darkness and sludge is just so often found in these situations, whether it's abusers, murderers, or whatever. It's just uh, it's a very interesting duality. But yeah, I think that quote was so unbelievably spot on. I have chills. I'm like kind of shaking after hearing it. Did you have a response to it when you first first heard it? So... I'm glad I got to read it for you out of context because to be honest, I do I do love the quote. Um, but it was kind of sandwiched in an article that I found was better than the quote. And when I I was so on board with the article and then I read the quote and I was like, this is making it just sound simpler than it actually is. But I think what it comes down to is maybe, although not all the words particularly connect with me I think that it gets at really what I see as a common thread in all of our answers in that you know can you separate art from artist is I think that what we've what I how I'm interpreting what all of us have shared throughout this conversation is yes definitely like definitely but it's actually a three-way triangle like it's not so much like separating art from artist you're in there too And so, yes, you can remove the artist out of it. And then what you have left is a relationship with the art. And you can make meaning with that, whether it's positive, whether it's negative, whether you you hear a song and you only think of your memories with friends or that same another person could listen to that same song and be like, my meaning is I only associate it with abuse and harm. And I think that that is what I'm taking away from our conversation here. But I guess my question off of that then is that if for that person that experiences like that, this, you know, brings up feelings of like abuse and harm for me, like, am I harming that person by experiencing something different by being like, oh, I'm just, you know, I had a really great time with my friends on this weekend or like, oh, this really helped me with my own healing. Like, am I harming someone else by, you know, getting different meaning from that? 
I mean, we could literally, I think, unpack this for hours is that we don't, again, live in a vacuum. And we know that anytime we walk into a room, three out of four women and have been experienced of some form of sexual violence and the prevalence of sexual violence goes up, the more intersecting identities someone has. And so there's this awareness of like, you may be able to listen to it in your headphones while you're walking and have been made that meaning. But yeah, we're not, we're trees in a forest, right? We're not, it, the world isn't about what makes us feel good and individualism is that we have to keep that community care and centering survivors at the heart of what we do if we want to move forward. And so, yeah, there's a difference between you putting it on in your headphones and like you working in a coffee shop and that's what you're going to, you're going to crank a playlist with like R. Kelly and Chris Brown and, you know, I don't have a clear answer at all, but but just the awareness that we're we're a part of something bigger. Yeah, I think that's incredibly important is that this is all community based, you know. I don't think that this music has the impact it does without the community. And I love the trees and the forest metaphor. I hadn't heard that before, but yeah, you're right. I think with the right kind of education, which I am first of all super thankful to be sitting down and having this conversation with you. I was definitely feeling some imposter syndrome earlier because I'm like, you know, who am I to chime in on this? I am a straight pale male, you know, like I'm the problem, but I, I really am thanking you so much for giving me some new vocabulary and I can already tell it's shifting how I think about things. And I think that's really important for me is to know that there's just like so much more that I don't know. So thank you so much for educating me. Of course, but I will say that the same for me, like the, the learning never stops and my opinions on things. I bet you if we had hosted this in two weeks, I may have pivoted in a different direction. And that's, I think that that's so connected to learning is the awareness that you can change your mind when you have new information and that's okay. Um, that's what we want to be. And I also want to acknowledge just to build on that point in case it's not abundantly clear that as much as I like, may like music made by people who have made not great choices. If someone in my life said to me, it hurts me that you still have connection to this, I would shelve. I would shelve any music or any painting or any form of art if it meant keeping them safe in our circle. But yeah, thank you so much, Stacey. You are, you know, someone that clearly loves to learn like you are also like a wonderful educator and like I'm so grateful like every you know I'm sure a lot of people are grateful but I hope I hope you feel that gratitude I'm feeling very overwhelmed thank you (laughs) (laughs) thank you I I realize we're wrapping the conversation up I and I do I I do want I know we acknowledged it in the beginning but I do look forward to many workshops with you I was not exaggerating when I said in July when things were peak bad and the future was uncertain and us managing to raise, I only know what it was in Canadian. So like just under a thousand Canadian um, and have over a hundred people at a workshop together was, and just to share that space with you um, and all of your contributions that you have for my work. I'm so appreciative of, and I'm so looking forward to more. Thank you so much. Thank you for just giving me the opportunity to to learn and to grow. It's like, it's so empowering, like, and it's so healing just to have like an outlet to tr- like, 
teach people, like give people a new perspective and just like contribute to like the incredible work you're doing. And I look forward to not only sharing more virtual spaces with you, but hopefully sharing an in-person space with you someday somewhere. The Bay Area, because I have many friends there, is like top on my list. As soon as it's safe to travel, I'm coming down. I'm getting tacos like I can't I just want to thrift shop and eat tacos and sit in the sun and do all of those things and probably go to a show. Yeah, I think how I typically end is if there's any final takeaways and let's start with Wes maybe. For me, I think the biggest takeaway, it's like you said, there's just so much to learn and so much to educate yourself about. And I just really want to stand strong and be a strong tree and have my roots tie in with other roots around me. And just make sure that everybody's happy and nourished and safe because I fucking love this community and it kills me that not everybody gets to have the same kind of carefree enjoyment. And I really hope that someday we as a culture and society get there. And I think we're on our way and I think conversations like this only help. One of my biggest takeaways from this is holding space for myself to be able to change my mind and not having to feel guilty for maybe not thinking whatever the right way is at first and that it is a process and that I think it shows growth if you can say this is how I thought at first but this is how I think now and I'm sure it will change but I think it's important especially on social media where it's so black and white where we have to give each other space to to grow and change and absorb new information and share perspectives in a way that isn't so black and white. I think my takeaways are to just continue to challenge the idea that that it's like zero sum, either or, black and white, that you can move through different spaces of thought multiple times a day. And the bigger takeaway lesson is the long game of creating a music industry that is equitable and safe for actually everyone and not just a sliver of people. Eyes on the prize. Well, thanks so much for tuning into our Swapcast with Sanctuary Radio, uh, hosted by Stacey Forrester. We hope that you kind of took away your own message. I don't want to say that you that you took away the same message that we did, because I think there's so many different messages that you can take away from this conversation. And I would actually love to hear from any of you what this made you think about, because it really made me think about a lot. And like, I don't think I have, you know, I don't, I still don't think I've, I have it figured out yet. I think I'm just thinking about it a lot more. So if you want to get in touch with us, I know Wes said it at the beginning, but you can email us at almostfamiliarpodcast at gmail.com. You can send us a DM on Instagram at almostfamiliarpod, or you can shoot us a message on Facebook at almostfamiliar. So, and if you're on either of those social media platforms, you should just give us a like or a follow while you're on there. That would be great. Yeah. And for our next episode, we're going to be talking to some homies with The Rust, which is a music label, production company, media company that just covers the fucking hot shit out here on the East Coast. And, you know, we talk a lot on this podcast about how dope Colorado is and how they fucking are just keeping the electronic scene booming. But there is something to be said about the power behind these East Coast people like the Rust. And, 
you know, people like Sermon. So, you know, the Rust Thumb, I think there's a huge difference in just putting on a show and putting on a well-done show. And I think the Rust are notorious for putting on some well-done shows. You know, there are some of my favorite shows I've been to in the city, which I'm not a New York City person. So if you're from the city, I apologize. You're just too fast-paced for me. In my heart, I'm a boy from the town of Berthoud, Colorado, where there's just cows that would be milling about. But the fucking shows I've seen in New York City that are put on by the people from the Rust are just bar none, like no expenses held. Maybe not in the like financial sense, but they know how to put together a really good event. They've curated some really wonderful evenings and have some super talented artists on their roster that are continuously pushing the envelope of what electronic music is and can be forward. So we're looking we're looking forward to chatting with them and we're hoping you're looking forward to listening to it and uh be dropping some hot shit in that next episode. I think one of our previous guests, 5 a.m., has released some music on their label. And I think he's performed at some of their curated events. I think he has a actually, I think um he mentioned Francesco is his manager. So I know he's you know, he's an East coast guy that is well connected with the rest. So we, I mean, we just love what you guys are doing and we love having people who just, you know, participate in that way on the show. So we're so excited to, to talk to them and just hear more about how they got started, how, you know, who influenced them and, you know, where they're trying to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, as you prep for that episode, you know, definitely check out soundcloud.com slash the rust, you know, you can look them up at the rust music and if you're not already listening to the music that's on this Russ label, you know, you, you get hip and we'll see you next time. And until then you just take care and be safe and remember to really be present. You know, we're living in some weird times as we adjust back to life as normal and shit's always changing, but we're here for you and we love you. And, you know, we hope you're just full of uh, nothing but good things here. I love that you gave people homework. I think that's awesome. We should probably do that more often. It's like not even hard homework. You know what I'm saying? Like, I I feel like I could ask more of you, but I think checking out a SoundCloud station that you'll enjoy is honestly pretty gracious. Yeah, we're basically doing you a favor. So you're welcome. And we'll catch you next time on Almost Familiar. (laughs) 